All right, good morning. Let's open a Bible to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, that's where we'll begin. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors. Thank you for being here. I want to do a little explaining about what we're going to be doing in this time. Uh, so from 9 to 9.40, we meet here. This is our assembly period. And uh, this, mon- this Monday, it's not Monday, this morning, uh, because it is the second Sunday morning of the month, uh, we typically have our Q&A service, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be having Q&A, and what that means is there are some questions that members here have asked me and uh, things that they're curious about. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are about how the Bible interfaces with our lives, and those questions then uh, I'm going to take some time and give you sort of a long answer, uh, and uh, so it's not a uh, back-and-forth Q&A press conference type situation where you quiz me about my answers. Sometimes that's good. Uh, because sometimes my answers leave more questions than answer. But uh, that's what we're doing this morning. So welcome. We're glad that you're here, and I hope that you find this beneficial. So first question we have this morning is, uh, why do maps of the Exodus not show the Israelites crossing water? I don't know if you've noticed this, but in a lot of the maps that we have, uh, the path that the Israelites take, it looks different from map to map, but many maps will show uh, something like this, where you have Israel coming out of the... Uh, by the way, this is, a lot of this is going to take place on the board where you have the maps for this question. So if you have trouble seeing that, I apologize. I try to make them as big as I could, uh, but even then we have some, some uh, trouble with that. Uh, but you have uh, sort of a crossing here, but not really a crossing of the Red Sea, which would be down here, uh, but a crossing somewhere up in here. Uh, this is Lake Timsa. It has them crossing here. And many of the maps, in fact, the person who asked this question said I, he's never seen a map that had the actual crossing of the Red Sea. And so the question is, why would that be? So uh, let's take a minute, just work with the text. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17, see what we do know, and uh, then we'll talk about why maps look the way they look. Exodus 13 and verse 17. Exodus 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. All right, so he talks about in verse 17 there that he did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. And most scholars agree that what that means is the land of the Philistines, of course, is probably Canaan up here in that uh, western portion of Canaan. Uh, But that would mean just sort of a direct route. If we were going from this part of Egypt to modern-day Israel, we would probably just go this way. And uh, he says he didn't lead them that way specifically, but led them out this way, by the wilderness toward the Red Sea. All right, Uh, verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm in chapter 14 now, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharahoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. So you have a number of place names here. You have Succoth, which we generally understand to be somewhere in this area. And you see this map has Succoth here. Succoth was an Egyptian fortress. Uh, but it, the exact location is not certain. But then you have in verse 2 of chapter 14, you have Pi-Haroth and Migdol and Baal-Zephon. And we don't know where any of those places are. We, we haven't found them. We don't know anything about them. So 
you have people that will try to guess, and you'll see different maps. We'll see some of them. Here's Migdol up here. You know, you put them down here. Some people have them over here uh, because we just really have no idea. So that doesn't help when you're making a map, right? If you're making a map and saying, where did they go, and all the place names you can't find. Uh, in fact, that kind of makes making a map a, a fool's errand. So uh, let's look a little further. Verse 21, chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Notice it says all night. And then uh, verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So it's, it's obvious from the text that a miracle occurs here where God parts the sea and they walk through on dry land. And then it's also obvious that the miracle ends in order to punish the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are going to die uh, as they go through the sea that no longer is dry land. Uh, but what you might not think about with that is some of the logistics of what that means. It says specifically that the sea was parted all night, and then when the morning appeared, the seas went back to normal. So what you're saying then is this has to be an area where a large group of people, we're talking 500,000 or so people, along with a lot of animals that we know they took with them out of Egypt, can cross over in one night. And then the Egyptians trying to follow them are drowned in the morning. So that limits the possibility. So we're, we're probably not talking about somewhere down here, right? Okay, Where it would be, you know, 100 miles or so to cross. Probably not going to get 500,000 people 100 miles in one night. Okay, So you see then part of the difficulty with a question like this is, where could it be that that kind of thing could happen? Okay, so that's part of the difficulty a map maker has, in addition to the difficulty of not knowing where some of these places are. Okay, so I'm going to show you here a series of maps and just kind of give you a feel for how some map makers have tried to handle this. So what this map maker has done is this Lake Timsa, see this, this area right here, this region, still has water in it. This is where the Suez Canal is today. Okay, so it is now connected. Of course, that's not something that was around in ancient times. But all of these could have been a part, considered a part of this same body of water that down here is the Red Sea. All right, so some map makers have said, you know, maybe this is just a, a smaller body of water that's like the Red Sea. So they have them crossing a Lake Timsa or some this Bitter Lake, uh, some uh, on the, the top right here of the Red Sea. This is where the town of Suez is today. Uh, we're not really sure, but that's the way some deal with it. Uh, here is another, and you can kind of see some similarities. Here, there's the, the way to the land of the Philistines in this one, uh, different paths, that uh, roads that are normally taken. And then they have them crossing Lake Timsa too, and then coming down here, Mount Sinai down here, and then the, the wilderness wandering over here. Okay, uh, same thing. Uh, here, though, they have them crossing over at the tip of the Red Sea here. Okay? But uh, you see just different ways of handling sort of the same problem. Um, the other part that... I'm going to go back to this first map. Uh, the other part that makes this challenging is, even today, if you look at a map, th this is the Red Sea, but this, the Gulf of Suez, is also considered the Red Sea. And this, 
The Gulf of Aqaba is also considered the Red Sea. So some people have suggested that maybe, and this, by the way, the Sinai Peninsula is part of, part of modern-day Egypt. So some have suggested that they went over here and the Egyptians pursued them here and they crossed maybe here, okay, which would still be a Red Sea crossing, very narrow. Uh, but that would, the, the difficulty then becomes, what about Mount Sinai? Well, just so you know, some people think that this, which is the traditional uh, region of Mount Sinai, what's called Jebel Musa here, is actually over here in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Okay, some people think that. Apologies to all of you who have visited the Mount Sinai, uh, that the, the tourist site there in, in modern Egypt, that that might not be the one, but you didn't hear it from me. All right, uh, so uh, I want to show you a map. Uh, let's see. You, you see, you've got a lot of options here for where they cross over. Um, this is the one I was talking about. Uh, this is by Steve Rudd, who runs Bible.ca. Uh, he, uh, he has them coming all the way down here and crossing here, and then he thinks Mount Sinai is actually here in Arabia. All right, well, you got all that info? All right, so why do, why do maps typically not have them crossing water or a lot of maps not have them crossing water? Well, I think it's a combination of everything we've talked about. I think for one, it's that it's hard to know where these places are because we don't have the information. Uh, I think for two, it's a bit confusing in the text. Have you ever asked the question, where were the Israelites going? Think about it. Were they going to Canaan? If so, why are they going toward the Red Sea? It's the wrong direction. So why would they need to cross the Red Sea? Okay? If, that's, we, we, if we don't know exactly where they're planning to go, then we can't really know where they're going to cross and why. Okay, so that makes that challenging. Uh, we know later on that they're told, hey, we're going to the, the promised land, but we're going this way. Uh, but at this point, we don't know why they're heading where they're heading other than they're following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They're doing what God is asking them to do. All right, uh, the other part is, and I think this is probably what may go unsaid but probably needs to be said, there is probably some bias on the part of some map makers that goes along this line. Some people just don't believe that miracles are possible. And because they don't believe miracles are possible, they're not going to make a map, they're not going to write a book, they're not going to act as if any miraculous deed could ever happen. So that's going to affect the way, if you're going to make a map and you believe miracles are impossible, you're going to say, no, no way they went through the sea. That's not possible. And so that may be a part of it, although I think uh, some of these other considerations affect it too. So the short answer is there is a traditional route, and this traditional route is something like this, uh, where they cross over a small, narrow body of water, uh, either here or here, or at the northern extreme of the Red Sea. Uh, and that short bit is probably due to the fact that they had to get a large number of people across a, a small body of water in a short amount of time. All right, uh, thank you for that question. And I'm going to put all my maps away. All right. Second question. Is it wrong to miss a worship service Sunday or Wednesday to attend and play in an athletic event? All right, so we are switching gears. You ready? Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look in Hebrews 10. All right, Hebrews 10, we're going to read verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our assembling in this text is a part of how we consider one another and stir one another up. By the way, just so you know, uh, Brother Richard Barnes has just written an article. It's going to come out in the bulletin this week. Lord willing, I guess we should say, uh, assuming everything goes according to plan, uh, which he talks about this and did a very good job uh, thinking about this text and how, how it applies to us. But I think the real thrust of this is that this is a, a part of a healthy Christian spirituality. We are thinking about other people. We are encouraging them. The focus is off of ourselves, and we are about growing together. And being together is essential to that. It is part of what God expects for us. He wants us to be together. Now, in the text, in verse 25, he talks about not neglecting to meet together. Yours might say forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, something like that, forsaking or neglecting. That's a word that means to abandon or desert, to forsake. So the idea is of something that we are abandoning. And he says, don't do that. Instead, make this a part of your life and who you are. Be with other Christians. He also says in verse 25 that neglecting or forsaking assembling ourselves together is the habit of some. It is a habit. And some people get into a habit of neglecting to gather with other Christians. And some people are in the habit of being with other Christians. But it is considered a habit in this text. So the passage teaches us the importance of habits. It teaches us that habits affect other people, not just ourselves. And that as we live out a habit, it has an impact on our spiritual life. So the question, is it wrong to miss a worship service to attend or play an athletic event? I think sometimes we struggle with the way the New Testament teaches things. So this passage obviously teaches something. It teaches us that this is good for us. God wants it for us. But it teaches it in a very positive way. Do this and don't forsake it. Because it's good for you and it's good for others. But I think sometimes we have a hard time just leaving it alone to say what it says. So some, somebody's going to come along and say, yeah, but do I have to? And then somebody else is going to come along and probably in a well-meaning way and say, yeah, you have to. It's a sin if you don't. And neither one of those is really faithful to the text. Not really talking about sin or not sin. It's saying this is what you should do. This is good for you, and it's good for others. And I think sometimes we just have a hard time taking that for what it is. That is what it says. So to go beyond that and say it doesn't mean I have to, or to say it's wrong if I don't, that's not really where the text is. So I feel like jamming it into that space, is it wrong or not, is kind of taking it and trying to say more than it says. So God wants us to be thinking about considering one another and stirring one another up. And part of that means we're going to have to be together. When I make a different choice, I will have to answer to God for my choice. And I will say that one of the clearest signs someone is struggling spiritually is when they stop assembling with their brethren. When you don't see them, almost always that is an indicator that something else is going on in their spiritual life. Now, there are exceptions to that, but I will tell you, I, I've worked with three different congregations now. I've worked with two different sets of elders. That's what elders look at. When elders notice that, they say, we need to check on them. Something's going wrong because it's an indicator that it's a symptom of something being wrong 
spiritually when people are no longer as interested in being with their brothers and sisters. It also seems to me that we kind of lapse into a school mentality about this. You guys, we're about to start school. My kids started school this week. So when, when you have school, you're supposed to be at school, right? When you're absent from school, what happens? Well, you either have, you ready? An excused absence or an unexcused absence, okay? The excused absence, you got the note, everything checks out. The unexcused absence, oh, that's bad news. You can only have so many of those, and you're going to get in big trouble. And so I think we do that with church. I really do. With the assembling of ourselves together, we say, well, there are some absences that are excused. And I'm not sure where we got the idea that we have the ability to excuse our absences, but somehow we thought, you know, well, there are some reasons that are okay and some reasons that are not. You know, did you get the note? And so we kind of have that mentality, you know, so we'll say, uh, hey, you're sick. Hey, that's excused. Out of town? That's excused. Uh, maybe. We'll, we'll put an asterisk by that. Depends on what you're doing out of town and what you're doing there. And, and you know, I've got to say, I don't have the authority to excuse or unexcuse you. Nobody gave me that. And the elders don't either. That's something that's between you and God. But we all need to acknowledge that there are going to be times when we're not going to be able to meet together. We're not going to be able to be here. And so there are some things we have to think about about that. So the question is about sporting events, an athletic event. So if the question is, are we going to miss being here because we're out of town somewhere playing in a sporting event? I'm not, under, I'm not sure I understand how being out of town to play in a sporting event is any different from being out of town for some other reason. Out of town is out of town. That part, I don't think, is really the issue. But if the question is, you know, we have a, an athletic event, you know, that's at the same time as our worship service, and we say, you know what, I'm going to go to the athletic event instead of the worship service. And I think that's the gist of the question. So, is it wrong? That's the question. And I have to say, I can't say that's wrong because I don't have the authority to say that. I don't, as a preacher. I don't believe that I have the authority to say that from the word. But I can say, it appears to me to be choosing physical things over spiritual things. One of these things is far more important than the other. And that needs to be acknowledged. I can say that by our choices, as this text says, we are developing a certain kind of habit. And habits go somewhere and mean something and affect both us and the people around us. I can say that there will be a time when we hang up the glove or the shoulder pads or the cleats and those things won't matter nearly as much, if at all. And I can say as parents, we are teaching our children something with the choices we make in situations like these. So my personal philosophy, and this is just Jacob, don't blame anybody else for this, my personal philosophy is that when my kids are in some kind of athletic or extracurricular whatever kind of activity. I want to try to make that and their spiritual lives both work as much as I can. I want to try to let them do this and this. There will be times when those things conflict, but I don't want to make the conflict. That'll come on its own. So I'm going to do everything I can to encourage them in both, but if there is a conflict, my choice is made. I'm going to do what is spiritual, and let me tell you that is not because I'm a preacher. Those choices were happening before I started preaching. In fact, they happened in my home growing up. So 
I am a disciple of Jesus. Jesus wants me to be with other Christians. That's what I'm going to do, period. So I encourage you, as you think through questions like these, that this is not about what, what is, can Jacob get up here and pontificate and resolve this question for everyone. What's going to happen here is that this question is a kind of question that we're all going to face all the time. If it's not athletic events, it's something else. It's something else that matters to us, or it's a work thing, or it's a family thing. It's something that's going to say, where are my priorities? So as we deal with questions like this, we just need to ask the question, which is more important? Which is going to be the priority for me and for my family? Can I also say this? Can we please not assume things about each other? Can we not assume that if somebody's not here, it's because there's some kind of significant problem or their priorities are in the wrong place? Now, it may be that that's what's going on. But to assume it, to me, is not thinking the best about my brother. It's instead thinking the worst. But I want to say, we miss one another when we're not here. We miss you when you're not here, for whatever reason, if it's excused or not. We miss each other, and that's the way that should be. That's the way God created this group to be. So I want to encourage all of us to be here as much as possible and develop the habit of considering one another, how we can make each other better. All right. Third question. We're going to totally switch gears again. Can you elaborate on the graves being opened in Matthew 27, verse 50? So let's turn over there, Matthew 27, verse 50 to 54. So the person who asked this question had a number of questions about this scene, and uh, I've kind of rolled them all into one, just talked about it as being elaborating. By the way, if you give me a question, I may phrase it in the way that I think is best, uh, like this, because there, there, was, uh, there was more than I could put on one line here. Uh, Matthew 27 and verse 50, this is describing Jesus' crucifixion. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. So some of the questions about this text, uh, about the graves being open and the idea there in verse 52 and 53 of uh, people coming out of the tombs and appearing to people, some of the questions are about, excuse me, chronology. So was Jesus raised first? Were they raised first? Were they raised on, you know, when Jesus died? Were they raised uh, when Jesus was raised? Uh, so some of those questions are about chronology. Some were about Jesus himself. What was the nature of these resurrections? What's the point of all of this? Did these people die again after they were raised from the dead? So a lot of questions about this scene. So let me just kind of talk through it and what I think is being taught here. So Matthew is narrating these events while Jesus is on the cross. And as he does that, he is talking about what happens when Jesus dies. And a couple of significant things happen when Jesus dies. The earth shakes, the rocks are split, and the temple curtain, the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place, that veil is torn in two, the curtain is torn in two. But there is also a difficulty here because you look at verse 53. In verse 53 it says, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. You've got the idea that people are raised from the dead, 
but it sure sounds like they are raised from the dead when Jesus dies, and they appear to many after his resurrection, which makes you ask the question, what are they doing for the days while Jesus is in the grave? You know, are they hanging out in their graves? And I actually, I, I did some reading on this, and one guy said uh, it would have been inappropriate for them to go out before Jesus, so they stayed in the graves, just kind of hung out. I mean, they've been there long enough, but now they're going to hang out a couple more days till Jesus can sort of lead them out. That, that seems a little odd to me. Uh, so let me tell you what I think. I, to me, I believe what's happening here is you have two events that appear to me to be highly symbolic. And they're narrated right in a row. In verse 51, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The tearing of the temple curtain is much more than about what happened to a curtain. Okay? Curtains may tear and they don't get press in the Bible. Okay? This curtain tearing is about a supernatural event and it signifies something. It signifies that the way into the presence of God is now open. When Jesus dies, the veil is torn, the, the wall of separation is removed, we have access to God. And then, verse 52, the tombs also were opened. I believe this is highly symbolic. Of course, the symbolism here is that death has been defeated. So you have people who have died who are under the care of death or Hades or Satan or however you want to frame that, and now they are released. Uh, there is one scholar who said this, it is as if the death of Jesus lets loose a wave of resurrection power that begins to ripple out. And so it's almost like naturally these people just start popping out of their graves. So much has happened in this moment uh, that there's something significant that happens. Uh, I also take verse 53 as sort of an aside. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, that is, also, this happened. You know, hey, we're talking about when, when Jesus died, the temple tore, uh, the temple curtain tore, the rocks were split, this earthquake happened. Oh, and by the way, there are also some people who were raised from the dead, and after his resurrection, they went and appeared to a lot of people. Okay? But, but it doesn't appear to me to be what necessarily is happening at this moment as much as something that Matthew views as connected to sort of this wave of symbolic actions that happens with Jesus' death and resurrection. So what I am saying is, I would take this not as chronological, but I would take this as Matthew saying the time when this happened is after his resurrection. So Jesus dies, all these things happen. Oh, and by the way, later on, graves are going to be open and people are going to come out. When his resurrection happens, there, that resurrection is going to happen too. So Jesus' resurrection, it seems to me, starts a wave of resurrections. So I think that's the way I would resolve that. For one, I think it's symbolic, and I also think Matthew's not really being... Uh, chronological by adding this. I sort of take it as an aside, and I would argue that the word also there in verse 52 is the reason for that. Okay, uh, so some other questions about this. Uh, was Jesus raised in a bodily form? Were these people raised in a bodily form? Uh, yes, Jesus was raised in a bodily form. Uh, that's the reason Jesus appears to the disciples and eats fish. It's the reason he says here, touch, you know, touch my body and investigate the wounds. Uh, Admittedly, there are some things that are a little different about Jesus in that state. Have you noticed? He uh, walks through walls. You know, he suddenly disappears okay, when he's talking to the, the two men on the road to Emmaus. So you have, uh, you have some differences, but at the same time, Jesus is obviously a physical being still. It may be that, that he's finally sort of using all the, the powers that he's always had, 
or it may be something about Jesus' form uh, being slightly different after his resurrection, the way our bodies are going to be different after the resurrection. Uh, So these people, it says in verse 52, uh, the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Uh, So they were raised in bodily form. Uh, The body without the spirit is dead, we read in James 2. So I do believe they had their spirits returned to them. I don't think this is a zombie situation, okay, where they're just the body without any mind or spirit. So uh, then he says that these are bodies of the saints. He says there in verse 52, that's interesting uh, because there appears to be some distinction between saints and people who are not holy, who are not God's people. So who are these people? Why are they resurrected and not others? Boy, we just don't have any information, do we? I, I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew who got to be in this special, unique resurrection just for a little while. But uh, we just don't have any more than that. Uh, or why these are raised and not other people. All right, so what's going on then with this? The primary purpose seems to me to be bearing witness to what has changed with the resurrection of Jesus. With Jesus' resurrection, things are new. There is hope despite death. There is victory over death. And now here is sort of a down payment on that, sort of a first fruits kind of situation where there are some people who are going to be raised from the dead to show, look, Jesus' resurrection is not a one-time thing. It is instead a promise that in the future God is going to raise. All those who are saints who belong to him, there is a future resurrection to come. All right, the other question I got on this is, did they go back to the grave? Did they die again? Well, huh. We just don't know. Let me start there. Uh, We just don't know. I don't think they're still alive. Do you know anybody who's a couple thousand years old? Okay, so that option is gone. They're not alive physically. Okay, Um, the only other option I would see would be for them to be taken up in some way, uh, either with Jesus or in some kind of separate uh, ascension or something. Uh, We just don't have any information about that. I, I read some people who thought that. Uh, this week, which is interesting, but I guess it's just sort of a a speculation thing. Uh, So I'm going to assume, though, the way I assume with Lazarus, uh, I assume Lazarus died again. In fact, I know they were trying to kill him again uh, in John 11, John 12. So uh, I I just think that probably they died again, but this is not really about a permanent type thing as much as an indication of what has happened and what has changed with Jesus. So let me say again, we are intended to see That in Jesus' resurrection, that's not the only resurrection. It's the beginning of what is to come. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus has the first fruits. Okay? You know what the first fruits are. That's the first part of the harvest. Okay? You go in and you take the first part of the harvest, not because that's the whole harvest, but because the first fruits promise there's so much more to come. In the same way, Jesus' resurrection promises there are more resurrections to come that we are going to be raised and that this is now sort of the beginning of that. All right, so that's what I've got on Matthew 27, 50 to 54. I may have given you more questions than answers. That's okay. That's okay, but uh, that's the best I can do with that. All right, thanks so much for your attention. Keep asking, and we'll be dismissed for our classes.